You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and today we have not just a fun and intelligent guest, but she's also a founder. We have Gretchen, who is the founder of the Human Collective. Welcome to the show, Gretchen. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's already a pleasure. This is going to be one that stumps you. Starting with a challenging question, what is your job? That's hard. (laughs) (laughs) I like to start by making you actually think. Make me uncomfortable and we'll see where we go. So the Human Collective is an organization that's been built to amplify, encourage and support diverse people in technology careers. So what my day-to-day job is rotates around making sure that can happen. So you say founder, CEO, doing a little bit of everything and talking, primarily talking with people actually would be the shortest version, but trying to make sure that the vision can come to fruition. So in my dream universe, tech teams would be this fabulous mix that looked like the people who use the technology that's being built. What a radical thought. Wild, right? (laughs) Okay. So that sounds like, you know, obviously that's quite an altruistic, really lovely thought, this, this human collective concept. How did you come up with it? I've spent, I've got most varied career pathway of anyone I know, although I know you've talked to a lot of people that have done some wild rides as well. My background is in mathematical modeling. Then I worked in events. One of those events was running World Rally Championships League in New Zealand. I've run agricultural trade shows. I've worked with plastic surgeons and startups and I've taught web development. And along the way, I realized technology is becoming more and more, I guess we say, people say it's just ubiquitous. It's everywhere. My hot take on this is that it's actually pervasive and it is everywhere. And if we're building technology that's not great technology, it's rubbish for business, but if we're building technology that's harmful, then we've really got a problem and we should start fixing that. And along my pathway of teaching people to be web developers, I got really passionate about the diversity of the students in the classroom and worked really hard to get more minority groups involved. And along the years, I've had hundreds of women come through programming courses and then realized a couple of years ago, they were all starting to drop out. And so I did some research and it turns out that in Australia, 56% of women leave tech careers in what is termed mid-career, which is hard to frame. I think it's around five to 10 years. But what that means is we're getting these really talented, thoughtful people with different backgrounds and experiences, and they're learning how to write code or be in the technical world and have influence and make great products and just bring a different perspective to what we're doing. And then for whatever reason, they have enough and they leave. And on a personal level, I just found it heartbreaking because I was like, I've loved you into this career and I love you being in this career and I want you to stay and build great tech. And also it's quite a good financial industry to be in, right? From And women have worse economic outcomes in Australia. So it ticks that box too. But having women leave the industry at that point is just devastating, not just for me personally, but it's rubbish for the industry as well, right? Have you got either data or your own hypotheses about why women leave? Oh, yes. There's a lot of data. I've been reading into it and it's a bit rubbish to be honest. Is it depressing? (laughs) It's, yes, it's very depressing. So, There are four main reasons women leave the industry mid-career. The first one that has been stated was always around flexible work practices. The data I've read was pre-COVID, so I'm not sure. I can't tell if we've made this better or worse with COVID. I'm I'm guessing the working from home aspect is better. Also pretty sure that the work-life balance is worse, I would say, had a guess. But there's not been a new round of data come out around that. So the number one reason was... Um, flexible work practices or lack thereof. The second reason was unequal pay. So in Australia, if you have a computer science undergraduate degree, as a woman, you will come out on 18% less on day zero in your first job. And then it just kind of gets perpetuated by, you know, pay rises that are a percentage increase on your salary, or you go for your next job and they say, what do you want now? And you tell them and they go, cool, and give you a bump on that. So when you turn around and realize that the person sitting next to you with equal skills and equal experience is being paid that much more, you get pretty disillusioned pretty fast. So that's 
the number two reason. And there's a lot more in that actually around how pay bans can and can't work for minority groups and also how there's a bit of a space for workplaces when this is brought to their attention to go, oh, wow, let me fix that or not. And the ones that don't lose people pretty fast and people know which ones they are, I think, in the industry at the moment. Third reason is around lack of career progression and opportunity. So I think people that get into technology and are passionate, they want to go out and fix problems and solve tricky stuff and make good products and not just do support tickets for eternity. And don't get me wrong, I think support tickets are some of the most important work you do in tech because I've been on the other end of it enough to know I need help all the time. But not many people want to do that for 10 years relentlessly. Maybe they do, but there are a group of people that want interesting career progression opportunities. And if you're not given them, they tend to leave. There's also data that ties into this around how that first, your first promotion as a woman in tech impacts your career trajectory. So some women are given great promotions, but they're also given them with no support. And it's a rubbish experience. They tend to leave the industry quite fast, as do women who get a promotion, but it's kind of half as good as the person sitting next to them. They also leave the industry fast. So it, it needs to be a promotion that is a good, solid promotion, has opportunity to be successful and also as well supported. Getting a promotion is really interesting because in Australia, across every gender, the average tenure you have before you get any leadership training is 11 or 12 years. So culturally, it seems that Australia doesn't value leadership training. So some people go and find it for themselves outside of work. But in terms of a workplace training, leadership training doesn't seem to exist, which I find upsetting. That's a good way of ensuring that things won't work. Okay. The fourth reason that women leave tech, and it's the one that riles me the most. And if you want a, if you want a three-hour rant filled with expletives, I can talk to this for the longest, longest time, is around perceived incompetence. And there was a GitHub survey a few years back on open source code and which bits of code got accepted and which did not. So if you're writing code, and I might be over-explaining this epically, it gets checked by people before it gets accepted. And just to make sure it doesn't break anything and that it's reasonable and you've thought stuff through. So when women were submitting code through GitHub, their code was accepted, at, I think it was 2 to 3% more often than men's on the first, first iteration, unless it was obvious that they were a woman, in which case their code was rejected, I think it was about 4 or 5% more than men's. So there's a real piece there around we in our minds, assume that men write better code and it will be more correct, therefore we will accept it. And whether or not you believe it or are aware of your subconscious bias, we kind of all play into it. And there's a piece that is so exhausting about having to justify your knowledge, background, skills, and competency before you can even pass that on. And that's <laughs> it just carries on and on and on. And that was one of the biggest reasons women gave. And I think we've done an awful lot of work around in the industry, getting more women in, getting them writing code and getting them active. But also what we've done a little bit there is make a huge amount of junior women in tech. And because everyone before them was a man, it's kind of amplified those, the rationale around, oh, you're a woman, you're not really technical enough. So I don't think you're great at this. It's never said that explicitly, but it's a tiring thing to feel every day when you're at work. Yeah, and it'll, it'll grind you down. Okay, so we've just listed up four relatively depressing things. I am going to ask you a tricky question, though. So you mentioned that a significant portion of women are leaving technical careers, 56% in the first, say, five years. Where do they go? Yeah, I don't know. No one tracks that data, and it's horrifying. I can speak anecdotally to the last year where I've seen a lot of people step away from their tech careers. And I know we're amidst the big resignation as well. But for the most part, a lot of them have just walked to do nothing and regroup and kind of recenter themselves. And now maybe six months after walking out the door, they're starting to go, I'm interested in coming back to do something, but I will not be going back there, which is terrifying. Also, there's a great data project in this. <laughs> Oh, yes. And I think we both know someone who, you know, could play in that space. But 
there's a great privilege in being able to step away from your job for whatever period of time. And I think what I've seen anecdotally is people really just wanting to do something that aligns with their values. They hustle to get through the pandemic and then they're just like, I've just seen how many people get made redundant or our company's values completely shift to just smashing out like value for shareholders. So I'd like to do something that I care about. So I think that might be something in that too. I totally feel that as well. That was part of my, I think I did my great resignation before it was a thing because I was at a pretty large tech company, which was great. And there was amazing people there and I had a good time, but I wanted to do something that had a bit more impact in a space that I was passionate about. So I totally agree with you on that values-based you know, direction. It gives you more energy too, I would say. If you're doing something you care about and the values align, it's not the same kind of drag yourself grind to go to work every day. Not at all. Okay. So we have some negative things happening. And I think in fairness, they're probably, they're reflected in academia. They're reflected in a number of different industries as well. What are you doing about it, Gretchen? How are you saving the world? Oh, I love this question. And I agree. It's not just tech that is doing this. I think my sister is in medicine and honestly, sometimes I go, why are you there? This is horrific. And I think tech is a young enough industry and got toxic so fast and so visibly that they've had to pull back and regroup and accidentally are better than a lot of the other places. But in terms of what are we doing? Oh my gosh, all the things. So (laughs) all of the things. The Human Collective runs a consultancy piece around helping organizations be really great places for diverse people and minority groups, because this is a bigger problem than what I just framed then. Because there's a lot of really actionable steps they can take around paying people the same, listening to people who aren't middle-class white guys in meetings. There's so many simple steps they can do. And a lot of organizations are really passionate and keen to do this. They just don't know where to start. And sometimes I think they're scared of making a misstep along the way. So they go, we're better off doing nothing than doing something and doing it badly and ending up in the media because we did something that had an ism on the end or an ist on the end. which I get. So it's about helping organizations be better at what they do. And it's actually so much fun because we only deal with people who care or else they wouldn't have reached out to us. But the piece I love the most about what I'm doing in the world, (laughs) love doing that. What I love more is the community side of the human collective. And it's around bringing diverse people together to support and encourage and amplify each other. Because I think if you're a minority group in an industry, you can start feeling like you're the only one and you're kind of just bashing up against a brick wall a little bit. And sometimes you need a level check as to if what is happening is actually okay or not, or am I overreacting or, hey, it is rubbish. Anyone got any pointers for how can how I can go around this or get a different outcome? But I also think building a community allows you to amplify one another and speak for one another and make the connections and in essence, create in a more wholesome way, the kind of golf course or the drinks at the bar that the networking group, you know, the old school business networkers used to have access to. Minority groups have been excluded from that. And if we can build a community that's really supportive, we can make that in a kind of a more human way that's open to more people. And I fingers crossed then we'll get to spread out into the universe and have these fabulous people in positions of influence across organizations, big and small, and they can bring people with them and encourage others and be kind of, you know, the beacon of light and and hope for other people to work towards. So that's the dream. It's a wonderful dream. No pressure. I love this, the idea of spreading, like I'm going to refer to them as door openers or gate openers, like and placing them in position. Like that sounds actually really Illuminati. Maybe (laughs) I might just step back. (laughs) Okay. I'm trying to do this without it being a cult. (laughs) Yeah. And obviously this has got to be visible because, you know, that's sort of part of the whole point. I think something else that I can see power in this being is that often it's easier to speak up for other people than to speak up for yourself. Like it's really hard to be like, oh, I've experienced sexism in this place or like that's sexist towards me. Whereas if you see it happening to someone else, it's easier to be like, dude, that's not cool. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent agree. It's 
because you're not feeling hurt as well. You're not having the emotional hit at the same time. You're half a step removed. And often that gives you a clearer overview of what's happening, but also allows you to come up with techniques and tactics to get the outcome you're after. And I think sometimes, I'm talking about me personally, if something feels sexist and horrible, I can do a little bit of like, uh, poor me, which I think is fine and there's a place for it. But I think if we're going to make actual change, we're better off looking at it slightly differently and going, yeah, that's really rubbish. The outcome I'm after is this one. So I'm going to change what I'm doing in order to get there. And then we can make some changes. So hopefully that happens less to other people. So maybe I'm maturing. (laughs) I'm trying to be more focused on getting the outcomes I'm after to make real change and helping other people do that as well. Because I know when I was in my 20s, there was a lot of, hey, that's rubbish. And we'd sit together as a group, kind of exploring how rubbish it was, which I needed to do, but I never got to that next piece of, but how can I get what I'm looking for from this? And I got stuck in that space. So really keen for us to come together and have ways of getting what we want out of the situation and what we deserve, right? Yeah, definitely. How can people support you or how can people support, like, I don't know, have you got tips for things that people could do in their workplace or is it just like we need to call you up and be like, come in and... I would love you to call me up and make the business the most successful in the world. But (laughs) there's some really easy things you can do. I'm trying to think of how to frame them in a better way. If you're in an organization and you care about your team, think about inclusion first and then diversity will follow. I think there's a lot of diversity and inclusion is this, you must do all these things. Here's a checklist, do the thing. If you just slow down for a moment and look at the team around you and say, and this doesn't matter if you're a manager or a junior, this is for all humans. If you look around and make sure you're including the people that are with you, you'll be taking a huge first step in the right direction. And inclusion is that piece about making people feel welcome and valued and useful. And I think sometimes we start with the diversity metric first because it's measurable, right? You can look into a room and go three men, one woman, oops, but you can measure it that, right? And then improve on it. If you look into a room, it's really hard to go, how inclusive are we? It's kind of nebulous. And, but I think it's a really important place to start. So if, if you go to your workplace or your community group or anywhere you exist and go, how can I make the people here feel included and valuable? Then I think you're probably halfway on the, on the journey, to be honest. That's a really simple one. But if you're in a position of influence and power within whatever structure you're talking, there is real opportunity for you to do things around just checking in to see if you've got a pay gap, just checking in to see what policies and structures you've got in place that may advance or hinder minority groups. And also have a chat with your executives. I don't know, you could be a junior manager and still need to talk to a CTO or a CEO or someone on the board. Diversity initiatives, good for business. I mean, the metrics around them have been happening for 20 years. You actually just run a better business if you have diverse teams, but you need to include them. So have the chats upwards and see what your organization is doing. And if they're doing nothing, maybe you'll feel disillusioned enough and resign. (laughs) Or (laughs) don't do that. Well, or if you do, make sure you give a really good exit interview. So much that. That's a great tip. (laughs) But I think it's really important to start questioning your organization about where they sit on this and what they care about, because it will impact you at some point, even if it doesn't right now. I think there's some great ones and we can all be more inclusive in everything we can do because, and do remember that diversity isn't always visible, right? Like there's a whole lot of invisible things, whether it's someone's like caring for someone at home or just all our brains work differently, whatever. Don't assume that the person who looks white and straight and male doesn't have other diverse things going on that makes them feel like an other. I think that's a great point because we all feel like the other sometimes and at our basis, humans want to feel like they belong. It's kind of simple if you break it down to that. We can, the podcast over. (laughs) Problem solved, move on. (laughs) Now, there there was something we mentioned before we started recording, and I'm kind of curious about your take on it because you have, I guess, a bit of visibility across a lot of different companies in tech. Something I bumped into when I interview people who have got PhDs, they're interested in moving into industry, or maybe they just don't feel like there's space for them in academia because there's like 10 jobs in academia. 
they don't necessarily feel like their PhD has value outside of this like bubble that they've been in. Is there any chance of you like popping the bubble? Oh my gosh. I might just pop it. I'm going to kind of catch the popped bit and mush it. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many transferable skills that come from this, right? From academia to tech, particularly. Oh my gosh, pretty much. I would just hire you. (laughs) That is all pretty simple. There actually are organizations in Australia that actively try and poach people from academia because they know the people are smart. They've got tenacity. They're able to sit with a tricky problem and work through it. They've probably done a fair bit of statistics at some point within this. And, you know, a lot of AI and machine learning is based around statistics. So there's a whole pathway for you. And tech is not just writing code for a web app. It is actually this saying I'm in tech is the same as saying I'm in medicine. Which bit? There are so many different flavors. I think if I were looking to employ someone and someone came to me with a PhD in, I'm trying to think of an obscure flower. (laughs) I don't know. Something in biology that had nothing to do with anything that I do. I would be really interested in having a chat with them. And if they had a passion around whatever technical product or space I was existing in, I would definitely hire them. The skills are so transferable. And the reality in tech is that, oh, I'm going to get slated for this one. No one knows what the heck they're doing. Tech is held together with kind of some duct tape, a bit of chewing gum, probably some icy pole sticks and a whole heap of goodwill and hope. It's like the Lego and you've got pieces missing and someone gave you some Lego that wasn't real Lego and there's a lot of hope in this. So technologists spend their life trying to Google what they should be doing, asking other people for help and genuinely questioning their existence, really. (laughs) That doesn't make it sound like fun, but it is. (laughs) And I think if you've done a PhD at any point, you've hit those roadblocks of loving something, getting tired out by it along the way, getting stuck and having to ask for help, doing the thing that you got told you should do when you asked for help and realizing it didn't help. So having to do it all over again. There's similar processes. And I think that that ability to problem solve and work through something hard and tough and carry on, you're perfect for tech. Come on over. We need you. Yes. In in case you haven't got the gist, there's actually a lot of jobs in tech. Like right now, this is January 2022 and there's just everyone is hiring. It'd be more useful on LinkedIn if people announced that they weren't hiring. That would be. (laughs) You're so right. (laughs) I think one of the other things that maybe you haven't realized if, if you've done a PhD is that that entire three plus years, you were project managing. You had this incredibly huge, ridiculously challenging project to try and do and you managed it and you got a like document at the end of it, you did it by yourself. Well, you know, you will have done it in teams, but the majority of it was by yourself. Like that's a skill. It doesn't necessarily matter what the content was. I agree. So PhD students, it's not all over. Don't give up. Yeah. PhD students, this is the beginning. (laughs) Admittedly, this is coming from two people without PhDs. But if anyone wants to confer me a honorary one, I would be happy to wear it. Yeah. Dr. Gretchen would sound cool. (laughs) what does an average day at work look like for you? What do you actually do? Yeah, this is a circle of life. We're back to question one. So I've gone through this journey of thinking I was quite confident and functional and productive and realized that actually, no, those things were kind of an illusion. So I've been doing a lot of work around claiming time and space for myself, which has made my days be quite weird. So I get up early, I rather the morning. So I'll get up at six, typically do a bit of stand outside and bare feet on the grass because I miss nature and have some water. Then I'll come back in and plan the day. So go through my calendar, see what's, see what's set up, what meetings I've got, what I need to do to mentally prepare. And then by seven, I'm ready to go answering admin emails. And from seven to eight, because we're a small business, I have like an accounting chunk on some days. Some days it's like an SEO checking how my marketing stuff's going. <laughs> so some days it's checking in with a business coach, but that early chunk is kind of admin life. And then what I do typically from kind of nine till 11 is 
try and chunk all my meetings with people then. So that could be potential customers. It could be people in the community I want to catch up with. It could just be general getting energy, giving energy, connecting in with what's happening in the industry meetings. Afternoon, I tend to block out massive chunks of time for the things that are in my strategy plan or roadmap plan. So that's kind of a vague, because it changes day to day, but the chunks don't change. And so I've got really good at scheduling uninterrupted time again. (laughs) Yay me, a little bit proud of that one, just going to say. I think that's a massive win. Like, (laughs) My calendar is like almost military precision. But in saying that, I finish early. I've got two kids, so I don't typically do much work after three o'clock because I don't want to. And there's other stuff to be done, right? We bake, garden, play some tennis, hang out and talk rubbish, go for a walk and get ice cream. I think COVID and the changes in life have made, I'm sure everyone, become really aware of the things I want to spend time doing and am scheduling them in. Because they're just as valid as doing your accounts. This is true. And I went through a journey. I had a very no screen December, January. So I took all the apps off my phone. This is pretty much the first time my laptop's come back out. It's been in the corner. I've banned everything from my life. But I took a day to do a personal strategy planning day for the year. And I've always kind of had some vagary plan, but it's often been really kind of just work focused. And this year I went through and went, okay, I'm going to have a work strategy. I'm going to have a family strategy and I'm going to have a like, personal me strategy. And even previously when I used to have, you know, kind of a career work one and a me one, the me one was always hundred percent family. And so I've separated the three out and I'm really excited for the year to do some of the things I want to do for me just because I want to. <laughs> So I'm really looking forward to 2022 and part of that meant I have to rebalance my time and have this somewhat militant calendar schedule. I think it'll be very interesting to check in at the end of 2022 and see how you went. <laughs> I might need quarterly check-ins and someone to beat me so I follow this <laughs> follow the structure I've committed to. But it's, You're off to a good start and that is like at least 60% of it, surely. Exactly. It's more planned and considered than previously. And I'm really excited... I don't know if other people experience this, but I've always felt like if I do something that's not with the family or with the kids, then I'm being selfish. And I think what that's led me to do is not achieve all of the things I've wanted to or have a sense of frustration. And claiming back the time cleanly has been really, really difficult for me to do personally. I don't, there's so many emotions mixed up in this and, and kind of societal conditioning, but I think it's really important to acknowledge that it's hard to do and that we do get pushed into roles. And don't get me wrong, I love my kids more than anything and I don't have any regrets around the time spent with them or the time I spend with them now. They're amazing people. But carving out that space for me to do the other things is also really important and I'm a little bit proud of myself for managing to do that. So (laughs) look at me giving me big ups. That was the other thing for the year was to celebrate the wins because I think, and I'm generalizing, personalities in tech, we tend to roll along do something fabulous, go, yeah, cool, and move on to the next really difficult thing, (laughs) torment ourselves. Built into Agile, I think that's – so Agile is like the philosophy that's used to create software. It's like that's a whole other podcast, but I feel like it's built into it that, like, you achieve something, cool, next thing. Next. (laughs) And so I'm trying to celebrate the wins a bit more along the way and – Actually, part of that is because I was getting frustrated at my kids doing amazing stuff and then just hating on themselves for not doing the next thing that they started for 30 seconds. I was like, oh, where'd you get that from? (laughs) Bugger. (laughs) Yes. How have you ended up in this role? So do you want to talk about your path from, say, high school to where you are now? Were you always going to work in tech and found a human collective? Perhaps, I don't know. I was disastrous as a teenager, absolutely disastrous. I hated school with a passion. Like mm, I wrote a lot of notes to say Gretchen can't come to school today and didn't really turn up. So I was in New Zealand, so grade 10 was fifth form. I passed everything and got the highest mark in science in my class, but failed because there was an attendance requirement And I hadn't turned up to class enough. 
and in my youthful wisdom, argued with the school and the education department that if I'd got that score not turning up, then perhaps they should bump my score up more. (laughs) (laughs) I love the logic. I remember at the time going, why would you not just give me a better score? Seriously. Turns out they didn't buy in and (laughs) failed science in grade 10. (laughs) I did a week of grade 11 and went, I don't want to be here. I've got stuff to do. I was restless and I was working at McDonald's part-time and I actually loved McDonald's. There was something beautiful about the systems and the structures and kind of the math that goes into it. I had the best time there. And so I left school and worked at McDonald's full-time and they at the time had management training and a McDonald's university and all these fabulous things. And I really enjoyed my time. And when I say they have systems, like there is stock ordering systems, there are kitchen layouts that are based on the dimensions of the kitchen and how many of each burger you sell to minimize the how many steps you take. It's like, it really is someone's math project in real life. Intriguing. So in between, I ended up being a teenage mother. At 19, I had my first child and took maternity leave from McDonald's. I didn't go back, but I went to university instead when she was 12 months old. And New Zealand has this beautiful system whereby you can, or at the time, you could enroll in university on the basis of being 20. So that was... So you don't need a score. You don't need to graduate. Just be 20. I'm like, that I can do. So I turned 20. Congratulations. (laughs) Worked hard. (laughs) And I studied strategic management and operations research. And I had no right studying operations research without having done high school maths. But three and a bit years later, I got my degree and went out into the world. And I had some of the best lecturers along the way. I remember one of our third year projects that was horrific. It was such a hard paper. And I think we were down to like 20 people in the class tops and maybe eight of them finished it. But one of the group projects early on was an optimization modeling we had to do. And so we thought we were the smartest kids in the entire city. Like literally, we thought we were awesome because we solved this problem. We optimized the bejeepers out of it. And very proudly, I'm showing my age because you had to print off your projects and take them to the lecture at this point. Three of us kind of strut into her office and go, we did it. Look at this. And she flicked through and looked up with utter disdain and went, well done. You just killed everyone and put her head back down. And we're like, no, we solved the thing. (laughs) Like we were still like, we're awesome. And she was like, yeah. She goes, at no point did you ask what this data represented. And it was a hospital outcome optimization model. And literally we just said, kill all the sick people, which is how that would go. And so her very brutal lesson to us that I have never forgotten was don't forget that data is just some odd approximation of the real world. And if you're going to model something, it has to then go back to the real world. So be aware. So we went from thinking we were the like smartest people in the world to going, oh, yes, lesson learned. Haven't forgotten it. That was a while back. After that, well, during that, I worked at the most fabulous catering company. It was family owned and we worked doing a lot of luxury brand stuff, which is Louis Vuitton. We had all the fun. We did six figure wedding receptions, like bonkers stuff. It was honestly one of the best times of my life working at this family business. And it gave a real insight into, so I took over their food ordering and whether we hired plates or bought plates because it was all optimization modeling. And also did some waitressing and some cooking and some cleaning and some driving and some putting up marquees and sometimes digging holes because it rained and you wanted the water to run off. It was one of the best jobs in the world. So much fun. After that, I moved to the North Island of New Zealand and my partner at the time, I was moving with him and he had a job and we got there. We'd like quit jobs, moved cities, turned up, kids in school. And then his work goes ah, yeah, we're going to delay your start date for three months. And it's actually in another city about two hours away. (laughs) So I was like, huh, best I get a job then. (laughs) So I applied for an events job that was in the newspaper. And it turns out it was a New Zealand National Field Days, which is the largest agricultural trade show in the Southern Hemisphere. And I spent a couple of years running that, which was also huge amounts of fun. 
So you got to use some modeling to design sites. You got to do strategic management and come up with big contracts. You got to organize things like tractor racing. Who knew that was a thing? And then because we were this huge, we're 54 hectares of land, when it wasn't this once a year event that went for, you know, it was a couple of months start to finish by the time people came and went, we hired out the site to other people. So that's where the World Rally Champs turned up and did the New Zealand leg on our site. We had the best time. Like literally it was just events and parties and, and nonstop chaos, which I tend to enjoy, I think. <laughs> but I moved from that to Australia, did some consulting, ended up working at a startup around plastic surgery, which was intriguing because that's not typically my jam. I'm kind of a bit, no, love who you are. But it was this fabulous piece around educating people, the difference between plastic surgeons and cosmetic surgeons. And I learned a lot. And one of the big learnings was put down your judgment on industries before you've talked to them. <laughs> That was a great startup. We got acquired by a listed company. After that, I ended up uh, teaching web development because I thought that was a really important place to be. And as I've said, really passionate about diversity in tech, but I got a bit tired of doing the same thing, which I think is <laughs> seems to be everyone in tech. <laughs> and also I realized that like web development is one piece of technology, right? Like writing software is just such a tiny part of building tech products. And I think tech has a piece where it's not great at telling people what it does or sharing information. So I guess I think if you went to an accountant, you go to them because they're fabulous at accounting, but you want them to be able to explain to you what you need to do for that to go well. And I think in tech a little bit, if I went to a software engineer, they could tell me this wonderful stuff that they're doing that's amazing because they know things. And odds are I'm not going to understand it, even though I've been in the industry for ages. And we have a little thing whereby the conversation would be someone explaining something to me. I would say, you lost me at this point. And they would go, oh, yeah, you're a bit dumb and walk off. <laughs> it's not that overt, but that's kind of the vibe. And <laughs> it's a bit rubbish. So along the way, I realized that the people that loved writing code and being software engineers, they might have had different life experiences and look a bit different. But in terms of personality types, there was a consistency. And so I thought, how else do we open up tech to be bigger and broader and more inclusive of different experiences, right? Because if it's just all the same personality type, we're still not really fixing the problem at a deeper level. So I went to a tech startup called Link and we built out a front-end development delivery platform. And so the front-end delivery platform super geeky tech product. But one of the beautiful things it did was every time an engineer changed code and pushed it up to GitHub, so they saved a change, it made a, a URL, a web link that you could share with anyone. So what that meant is I could make changes, for example, and make all the buttons on a website blue instead of pink. And instead of then having to go and find the designers or find a customer and get them to come in and hang out in front of my computer whilst I spun up a staging environment or maybe connected it to production to see what would happen, I could actually just share a link to these people and they could see it whilst I was midway building it. And so if you're doing that with your design team, then it saves having to rework stuff later. And if you're doing it with your customers, it means you're building a product that they like and will use because they give you pretty brutal feedback at times. <laughs> um, so I was really passionate about how that could open up because web development or code writing is a bit of a black box, right? Like it's hidden. No one really knows what's going on until it's finished. And then it's often too late for people to go back and fix stuff because the money has been spent, the time's been allocated and we're moving on to the next thing. <laughs> so being able to open it up and have visibility whilst things were being built was it just seemed like such an important piece of kind of the democratization of tech building in my mind. And we had the best time. We had a great team and in many ways we're a little bit too successful because we also got acquired. <laughs> so we got acquired by Cloudflare, which is unreal. They're doing some great stuff in the tech space. So I went off to Cloudflare with the rest of the team. And whilst I was at Cloudflare, I started to hear from a lot of the people I had I guess, built up in, within my network within tech, but also some of the women I had taken through web development boot camps and 
they're friends, right? <laughs> the people I'm friends with in the industry were catching up with me and a lot of them were ready to leave tech. They'd had enough. They were burnt out. They were tired. They were sick of building rubbishy things. And they were all saying the same stuff. And so I decided I was going to pull the pin on the security and love of a corporate gig and run off into the universe and create a space where we could support one another to stay in technology. So that's the very long-winded way of how I got from high school (laughs) to the human collective. There was no game plan, (laughs) clearly. But I have absolutely no doubt that each of those things that you learned along the way has added up to you being able to do what you can do now. Like you wouldn't have been able to do that as an 18-year-old. You need to have all this experience. I know how to pour champagne well. And I also know how to do accounts because, of, you know, you learn something different at each experience and they all do come together, which ties in beautifully to going back to PhD people coming to tech because everything they have learned is also transferable. One of my students actually was a theatre actor. That was his original career and he'd spent 15 years as a paid actor in theatre and he came over to tech. I think he must have been 30, 35 And an amazing developer. He writes code. He finds a joy and a lyricism in writing code. It's beautiful to watch. And I remember talking to him and going, there's a lot of transferable skills, like lawyers come over, musicians come over. He was the first theater actor. And I was like, like, I'm a big fan of transferable skills, but I'm not, they're not obvious to me. Can you help? And he's so divine. He goes, oh, no, they're exactly the same thing. He goes, in one, I'm remembering lines and patterns. He goes, that's tech, right? It's lines and patterns. And you remember them and then apply them and then tweak them and make them better. He goes, exactly the same. And he works for a consulting company. And he goes, the other thing you do in acting is have huge amounts of empathy because you truly have to put yourself in the other person's shoes to be them. He goes, who better to be a tech consultant than someone who can empathize with the customer and the end user? And so theatre actors come on over to teachers there's also quite a few teachers who come across and you'd be a mate like as a teacher you've had experience like talking in front of people you don't know how many people in tech are just dead terrified of the idea of saying something in front of another person like that immediately gives you the step up the fact that you're willing to talk in front of people <laughs> I agree and the best technologists in my mind are the ones that can speak to people and bring them along the journey and teach them the code they've written or the product they're designing or the project they're managing. Teachers, yes, although (laughs) there's not enough teachers either, but come to tech. When you do your five years in teaching, come over to tech. Yes. (laughs) Have you got any advice for young people? Obviously, we've touched on the PhDs, but people who are considering transition, transitioning to tech. Absolutely. There are 20 million free resources online to get started. So if you think you're interested, the first thing I'd do is tinker with things like Code Academy, but the really basic get into code. So whenever I'm learning anything new in tech at the moment, and I'm quite confident with writing code, I will Google, how would a child do this? Or code for teenagers, teach a teenager how to code. That is the level I need to understand anything that's happening. So start there. So find online resources and tinker with them because writing code might not be the thing you want to do. It might be, but there's other spaces in tech as well. The other thing I'd recommend is talk to people who are in tech and there will be someone in your realm who knows someone who is in tech. And whilst technologists might not like talking in front of groups, They love to geek out and tell you about what they're doing. So (laughs) reach out and find people. And depending on what age you're at, there's quite a few meetup groups and most of them are online at the moment. Just have a look and see what's around because you get a feeling for the people that are in the space, the connections that are there and how you can interact with them. So one of my other things I do is I'm a director at Women Who Code Melbourne and we run monthly meetups in the last last Thursday of each month. So one this week coming up in the evening, they're all on Zoom still because we're not heading out and about yet. But the meetups are such a great space. And what it does, you don't have to participate at all. You can just go and observe and you get to see people in the industry, what it really feels like. Often you'll hear about what jobs are out there. And also tech is about kind of connecting with people. So 
if you're really interested in it, the people you meet at the meetups will be the people that help you get a job or help you decide where and when you need to study and what kind of way you could study. Because that's the other piece. You can move into technology quite quickly if you want, but some of the pathways are pretty brutal and might not necessarily set you up for success. So I have taught at boot camps and I'm split in my opinion. I think for some people, they are fabulous and they offer a really quick, hard way to change the industry they're in. For other people, they're just an absolutely traumatic experience and shouldn't be undertaken. The reality with a boot camp is they'll say it's kind of nine to five a few days a week. What they mean is it's nine to five in the class. You're going to need to do two to three to four hours study a day to catch up and keep up and understand it unless you already had background knowledge. And then when you get a job, you're coming out as a junior. So that first job and getting that first piece of employment is going to be tough, like really hard. You're going to have so many rejections. It just hurts. But once you're there and you get your first kind of junior job and do 12 months at that, you'll be flying, you know, and other options are going to uni uh, or self-study online. I'm not disciplined enough for that. (laughs) But there are also other programs. So Code Like a Girl run great programs helping people change and they're funded in different ways. MYOB run some interesting programs where they fund people to change careers So have a look at what's around and also reach out, join my Slack group and and connect because ask me the question. The lowest hanging fruit is to message myself or Gretchen and we'll we'll send you an invite to the Slack group and you can chat to other people who want to change careers. Yes, but also do it. Well, just do it anyhow. Yeah. (laughs) Change careers. I mean, tech is, I think, a wonderful industry to be in and... It's not just writing code. It is, as you said, the project management, the product building, the customer interaction. There is so much in it. And I think every company is going to be a tech company. Well, they are. They're just kidding themselves if they're not. Even your milk bar down the road will have an ordering system set up somewhere. Come to tech. All your takeaways have got the little like order online things now. It's fantastic. Yes. Yes. Are there any myths that you would like to take this opportunity to quickly bust? Oh, yes. <laughs> Should have started there. <laughs> have we got another hour? I think that there's two main ones I'd like to hit on. One is that you need a math degree or you need to be a genius at maths. And that's actually just wrong. You don't at all. I mean, if you want to write some machine learning code from scratch, A, it's probably a waste of your time because there's some libraries you could use. And B, just why, then you would need a math degree, right? Other than that in tech, I think the maths you need, you can learn along the way. There are pre-built things that do the maths for you now. It's like using a spreadsheet. We don't all remember our times tables up to 15. And why would you? The tech can do it for you. So if you go, I'm no good at maths, probably that's society bashing you. And it doesn't matter in tech. You are welcome here. The math does not matter. The second one is, It's not tech bros and hoodies in a basement writing code on a black screen with a green font. (laughs) If you come across one of them, send help because they're not okay. Tech is not an individual sport anymore. I think it might have been 15, 20 years ago, a little bit. It is not that. And it cannot be that. The things we're building are too complex for any one person to do alone. The caveat to that is every now and again, you might pop across an organization that has a couple of those people hiding in the corners, just stay away from them. (laughs) They're not okay. (laughs) But no, I do, however, have a couple of black hoodies that I got from conferences. So sometimes we wear hoodies, but we don't do it in the corner. You wear them with other people. (laughs) Yes. T-shirts, hoodies, stickers, they are ubiquitous. Less so currently because it's a bit harder when you're at home, but I've even got socks now. I got slack socks. I've got Google socks. They're really comfy. It's a lot of merch. There is. Yeah. So hoodie isn't required. You can just quite professionally if that's your jam. You just don't have to. That is a beautiful thing about tech, actually. You can, some days I go to work in my conference t-shirts and some days I'll wear, you know, the kind of equivalent of a suit. You can do whatever you want and there's not a lot of judgment around it. I like that. Well, yeah, it is, that is a lovely perk, actually. So just to start wrapping up, have you got a shout out, virtual high fives for someone or someone's who you think are doing an awesome job and deserve all the virtual high fives from our listeners? 
I've got a you, huge you list. You don't have to pick one. <laughs> oh, no. My big shout-out will be to this fabulous group of humans who kept me sane and safe over the last couple of years. We've named ourselves the Unbossables because we have recognised that we would be absolute rubbish employees for anyone. <laughs> but it's a group of people that we I have virtual 2pm coffee with every weekday and we have done it relentlessly. It's been fabulous. So that would be Dr. Linda MacGyver. See, PhDs are useful sometimes. <laughs> Michelle Playfair, who's just a guru of conferences and tech in general. Laura Summers, who is a beautiful human in fair machine learning and good design practice. Javier, I can't say his last name. Oh my, he's going to kill me. No, he won't. He's too kind. And Deirdre, who's in Sydney. So these people have kept me okay during COVID. They've offered professional and personal advice and love and support. And they are amazing people in the tech world, doing good stuff in different spaces. They are. And we have obviously interviewed Dr. Linda on the show earlier, at teaching learning heresy, teaching heresy. Definitely follow that up. It's more spicy things. Oh, yes. Okay. Lots of high fives for all those people. Listeners, you know, I don't think we can undervalue keeping each other sane at the moment or in the in the last couple of years, it's been interesting times, especially if you're venturing out doing your own thing. That is true. And I think there's a piece around having a routine with that group of people. And it didn't matter if one of us couldn't make it because there was enough others, but loving one another and supporting one another. Oh my, it's what we needed <laughs> and need. Yeah. Oh, it's not over yet. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Gretchen. This has been absolutely delightful and hopefully I've got some little cogs ticking in some listeners about some future ideas for them. Thank you so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to support Avid Resets this year, that would be amazing. Uh, you can buy us a coffee, head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link, buy me a coffee, and you can support us with a one-off little coffee payment. Thanks so much for listening, you're a legend. <laughs>